What's going on, boys and girls? We have a terrific episode of Two White Lights for today. I was joined by Zach and Josh from Data Driven Strength, and we had ourselves a fantastic interview. Uh, Steve DeNovi joined me as well, so that means I was in the presence of three intelligent, fantastic coaches. And we told you in previous episode of Two White Lights, we're going to have a lot more coaches on, and a lot of these are going to be informational. And if you're a coach, if you're an athlete, or if you're a guy like me just trying to get some more information, this episode is a must-listen. Uh, Steve actually took the lead on this one, which makes sense because he's the more intelligent of the two, let's face it. I kind of lack in this department, and it was just a great episode if you want to know more about programming and coaching and some of the intricacies that go along with it. And um, well, Of course, we start off with the background, and we get into just some real nitty-gritties of coaching. Uh, Submax training, which Data Different Strength is talking a lot about, uh, junk volume, static rep counts, uh, distance traveled, elements of data tracking, uh, and where can we go with programming in the next five years. And at the end, we kind of talk about some coaching hot takes. Uh, what hot takes that Zach and Josh have, what are some hot takes that Steve has, what I have as far as just coaching and programming. This was just a really fun episode to listen to. Again, if you're a person trying to learn a little bit more about coaching or a lot more about coaching, because this episode is extremely informational, listen to this episode because I learned a lot. And if I learned a lot, I know you guys are going to learn a lot as well. Thank you very much to Zach and Josh for coming on the show and also to Steve for really anchoring this interview because he asked really good questions and also went with a great back and forth. So, it's always good to have back and forth between you know coaches of this caliber because that means you're going to learn a lot more. You're going to dive deeper on a whole lot of stuff. You're going to get into the nitty gritty of uh, programming. So awesome episode! Before we get into the program, into the program, gotta to talk to you guys about Left Floor Bros. Ladies and gentlemen, go to leftfloorbros.com. Make sure you're following Left Floor Bros Apparel on Instagram and check out the designs and the merchandise that they have. They are coming out with this. Awesome, awesome designs, jogger, tank tops, dad hats. They keep on coming out with new stuff, and that is vital if you're going to have an excellent apparel company because new designs, fresh designs, dope designs what you need. Also, they're going to help you look good in the gym, on the platform, and outside the gym as well. Use promo code 2WL15, the best promo code in powerlifting, to save yourself some money on Leflar Bros merchandise. Also, we have two white lights Merchandise exclusively sold on leftlarbros.com. So you cannot get two white lights merchandise anywhere else aside from leftlarbros.com. Use the same promo code 2WL15 to save yourself some money on leftlarbros merchandise. Also, make sure you're going to lift.net and checking out some stoic gear. I wear stoic gear in the gym and on the platform because it is the best and is the most affordable. Use promo code Angelo10 and that already affordable knee sleeves, wrist straps, and singlets becomes even more affordable because you get to save yourself some money. Remember that promo code ANGELO10 to save yourself some money on Stoic Gear from lift.net. Also, make sure you are on Notorious Lift, following my Instagram, checking out the website, and get yourself some no-slip drip deadlift slippers. They are the best deadlift slippers in powerlifting. Also, they look the best as well. If you are going to be a good deadlifter, it is one thing to have optimal performance, which that's what help you. That's what deadlift slippers will help you with. But also, you want to look good while deadlifting a lot of weight. And with the designs, the colorways, and notorious lift slippers has, you will definitely look good doing it. Use promo code ANG15. That is A N G 15 to save yourself some money on Notorious Lift. 
no slip drip slippers. Also, make sure you are signing up for that newsletter, getting those drops because they sell out very, very fast. Um, and you're going to see a colorway that you like and you do not want to miss out on it. So make sure you're on the drops, but also be on the lookout for when they have, uh, when they bring back some of the old designs that sold out in the past. People have been seeing a lot of the stealth recently come up, and that's been a favorite of Notorious Lift. Use that promo code ANT15. Still works, even if it's not a new drop. Also, remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, leave a review as well. We thank you for everyone who has left a review and left a five-star rating and for subscribing. Please continue to show us some love, and that is important for Two White Lights. But without further ado, here it is, Two White Lights. And as promised, I am joined by three fantastic coaches. I'm in the presence of just coaching genius right now. Of course, I have my co-host Steve Denovi with me, but also I got the boys from Data Different Strength, Josh and Zach. First question, does it ever get frustrating to be called Josh and Zach Data Different Strength and now your actual last names? No, we prefer the, the uh, anonymous status of our names. We, we actually have one of our, our guys on our team who helps us with like some back-end athlete monitoring stuff. His name is Drake. My name is Josh. Big fan of Drake and Josh growing up, so it actually works out really well. Perfect. It's also actually a really good marketing thing, too. It is, when you are known by your coaching like uh, brand or tree, it's like the easiest, because I forever thought that Bryce Lewis's last name was Bryce TSA. I thought his last name was Tsa. Tsa. Zach, Zach DDS. I mean, it just rolls off the tongue. Yep, for sure. For sure, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, same thing, Kyle Project Strength. You're, ever, you're forever going to be known as your Instagram handles, but I got you gentlemen with me, and I'm very excited to have you guys on because we're having a lot of coaches on, Two White Lights coming up, and of course we're going to have coaches on that we really like to talk to, we really respect, and also things that the audience can learn a lot from if you've listened to all these coaches we're going to have on. So thank you for coming on the show, but before we get into all the you know the, the great questions about what Steve has prepared, what I have prepared, how did you guys get your start into coaching and then how did, uh, oh yeah, what's your backgrounds and how did that kind of transfer over into coaching? Yeah, so I'll keep this relatively brief, but I think both Josh and I were, were athletes in high school and I think, you know, the typical path of going to college, no longer playing sports and you kind of have to find that competitive outlet. Um, both of us are pretty analytically minded, so I think it's kind of easy to find your way into a pursuit that allows you to look at numbers and everything, which is, is pretty easy with training. Um, from there, I think, I don't know if, we always like to say like powerlifting isn't something we really sought out, but it kind of found us. Um, it's, it's a really good avenue for the analytical minded people that kind of, you know, like I said, really care about training. So I think, you know, we, we met at Ohio State University uh, in one of the rec centers, you know, started coaching a couple of friends there, um, kind of worked our way up, uh, and, and both of us have 
kind of pursued grad school down here at Florida Atlantic University, um, slowly progressing with that. And, and as we've done that you know, and, and continuing to learn more, we've just got more and more coaching experience and kind of have data-driven strength has grown to a point I don't think either of us ever thought was even remotely possible. So, um, yeah, so now we just really enjoy kind of trying to take the, the scientific uh, process and, and apply that to, to every single lifter, whether you're coming in the gym for the first day or, or been doing it for years. We really try to make the, the application of the research and, and, and uh, make that um, something that's actually useful to, to pretty much every lifter. Yeah, so then you, you said in, in there that, you know, you powerlifting kind of found you. How did that exactly happen? Was Were you guys just interested in the sport at all, or just how did that kind of get into you? I think it's just a natural – it was just kind of a natural thing to happen, like Zach said. Um, like, I think Zach and I really like strength training, and powerlifting is kind of a, a way for us to be analytically minded about it and, and kind of have those arbitrary standards that, that make up the sport. Um, like, me personally, I, I worked with some team sport athletes in, like, a private strength and con- conditioning facility for a while – uh, both Zach and I worked with some clinical populations in uh, when we were in college. Um, Zach has also done that um, down here at, at, at Florida Atlantic as well. Um, I worked with GenPop for a couple of years and then just slowly progressed towards more barbell-focused stuff and then eventually just kind of progressed into squat bench deadlift. So I, I would say I, I haven't really considered myself anything beyond, like I didn't really transition from a strength coach to a powerlifting coach. Until the last, I feel like, year and a half or two years, I've, I've personally identified as my, that. My introduction is, like, I was, my fascination with strength training was mostly around sports and mostly, like, speed and jumping early on. So, like, that was what I, I care about primarily, um, to try to be better at sports. So, I came across, like, West Side and stuff mm-hmm. pretty early on, and that was kind of my introduction into, I, I know what powerlifting is, I didn't really pursue it similar like josh said we kind of were just like all about strength training and, and found kind of a community at our at our rec center that was really involved in the powerlifting club at ohio state and kind of got more exposure to to the sport from there um but yeah i, I think that we kind of uh like i said just kind of naturally progressed um based on our interests to kind of get us where we are now fun, fun fact zach is a louis simmons apologist absolutely yeah. <laughs> well talking about louis simmons and then your next influence, be truthful of like, did Zordos really give you a choice to be powerlifting coaches or stick with strength and conditioning? Did he force that upon you upon threat of death? Or are you, were you, were you allowed freedom of choice of, of what direction you wanted to go? I think one thing for him that uh, I don't know if a lot of people know, like his, his first pursuit that he, I would say he even like still enjoys that to most of this day is, is concurrent training. So one thing that people, a lot of people don't know that he did, he, he ran a marathon in very close proximity to do a, doing a pilot to me. So like that was kind of his, his real love before he really got down the, the whole DUP rabbit hole and all that kind of stuff with, with piloting and being viewed as kind of um, that, that person. So um, yeah, he, I mean, he's, he's a great, great mentor. Obviously, hopefully he doesn't listen to this and his head gets too big, but uh, he's, he's an amazing mentor and allows us to have a ton of freedom um, and, and explore a ton of different things. So yeah. The real answer is no, he wasn't dogmatic and, and allowed us to kind of explore and, 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 and find our own paths. But I think he, he gets uh, doesn't get enough credit for kind of the, the width of his knowledge in terms of exercise and, and, and kind of his passions. 
Well, that's my next question because, I mean, really the reason we wanted you on here was nothing about your own information. Um, we don't really respect that fully. It's we want to know where Mike Zordos is. I can't disclose that information. <laughs> Just do a hashtag Mike Zordos and, and you, yeah, you may end up getting yeah. in contact with him. I mean, we, we always like to shout out his uh, wife's Instagram page, The Gardening Dietitian. Um, Dr. Kochia, is, is, uh, she likes to house the hashtag Mike Zordos as much as possible. So if you're looking for him, that's probably the closest you're going to find him. But other than that, he likes to stay off the grid. I mean, the sad part is there might be people listening to this podcast that don't know who Mike Zordos is because apparently five years is a long time. Well, I was about hashtag. to I was about to add in there the fact like you guys talking about him and I'm pr- I'm like I make it very known how little I know about you know the uh, the exercise science part about powerlifting. I actually know Mike Zordos. Like that's how since you ran PH three. Yeah, exactly. That, that was, so, like, I actually, his, yeah, because I remember watching legacy and child through Lane Norton. Yeah, I remember watching Lane Norton stuff. Coach on the podcast. Yeah, Lane, <laughs> Lane Norton stuff and Eric Helms stuff, and I actually like that. Still, kind of kicks in, but yeah, I don't know if uh, I don't know if all the audience members uh, know exactly who he is. I don't know. Is there a thing though that he's missing? Like, that's one thing that's over my head right now. I just thought he's a lucky guy. Not. He's just not really uh, an, an, an internet-focused guy. He does, he's not present on social media. Um, I mean, you can find him on the internet, you know, do a quick search for him. He's a writer for, for Mass, which is a research review, um, which, which a ton of people read. Um, but you cannot find him on the gram, so, unfortunately. So he's a, an adult? YouTube videos of some crazy squat sets you can find, though. I'm going down, unfortunately. Yeah. They're down? The workout, the, the workout machine is dead, unfortunately. Uh, Oh, those were well, great videos, though. Well, actually, a quick topic here, because I don't know if a lot of people even realize that this is you, Zach, you coach Lane Norton now, um, which is awesome. Give us a little lowdown on that. Yeah, so me and Lane have been working together for a little bit now. Um, obviously, it's a super humbling experience for me uh, growing up, um, you know, knowing who Lane is, and I think he's pushed a lot of us going in this kind of research direction to, uh, to pursue that and, and think that's a possibility. So that's been a really, really cool opportunity. Um, he's obviously an extremely talented athlete and an extremely bright guy that's that's easy to work with. And then he's, he's got some goals. Obviously, the, the big thing we're trying to work through is uh, some of the injury history that he's had, which is unfortunate. But we know that he has the capacity to, to – hit those numbers once again it's just a matter of kind of getting getting everything together and slowly progressing those loads in a in a systematic way that allows them to hit that peak performance so we're, we're in the process of doing that we've we've had a kind of our first training cycle got to a got to a testing day which was kind of our first mission and now we're kind of in a in, a, in the second phase where we're still looking to build on that so this is incredible because from my understanding don't you also coach Joe Stanek me and Joe are not working together right now, but I have coached Joe, yes. So you coach both of my coaches. <laughs> <laughs> if you go back, Lane Orn still is not aware that I was an athlete, but Joe Stanek, I am currently under him. So really, like, you're the perfect guy to talk to. You are pretty much the 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 overarching god in my programming. That's definitely debatable. But. <laughs> well, and what this means is that, Zach, you need to hire me as your coach so that Angelo can 
be under the guy that's under me because that's there my real thing. Yes. Here we go. <laughs> Zach, Zach is a PhD student in our lab. I'm a second year master's. I'm I'm under his. I'm under him in there as well. So we can all just start bowing down to Zach now. Yeah. All right. Perfect. That's that's that, so. Lee, that was actually a question I had. Is that are both you kind of going towards the academic route to stay within academics and, and be researchers and or professors or what's kind of the uh, you got DDS, but I, I don't know if is that the end goal or where are you going from there. No, Depend, don't like depends what month it is. <laughs> yeah. Go for it, Zach. No, I, I think. I mean. Like Josh said, like this is something that, that changes uh, at a frequent basis. The more you kind of get into academia, you know some of the really cool parts of it. You get to know some of the parts of it that aren't as um, glamorous. But I, I think I think both of us are really just like the research process is extremely motivating. And like getting to pursue something every day where you get to ask new questions and find answers to those questions is really, really fun. Um, dealing with the, some of the other stuff that comes along. But it's like on a Tuesday, I was like, ah, I don't know, man, we could just – you know, do other stuff. But I, I think on the whole, I, I see both of us in the long term um, being in academia in some capacity. I guess that's the way I, I, I don't know exactly what that means as of right now. But um, yeah, I, I love it too much to give it up uh, full stop. Yeah, just just to add to that, I think, you know, we're we still have a ways to go in terms of, of the academia stuff. But um, what, what we have done so far, both what we do with data-driven strength as well as academia stuff complements each other. Like, I don't think we would be as good of question askers or, or researchers if we didn't have like, you know, the, the experience of working one-on-one with athletes. Um, and, and obviously that goes, that goes the other way as well. So, um, you know, I, I think they complement each other well. So academia, like for me personally, I would just echo what Zach said. Um, academia in some capacity. I don't know if that's pursuing a, a tenure track position at a university or if it's just, you know, having having ties to different researchers and, and, and trying to contribute in whatever way I can. But uh, TBD, like I said, my tone might be different uh, next month. So so in your experiences, because you had this, uh, this transfer over from strength and conditioning to powerlifting, wasn't it easy carryover or is there some like uh, learning adjustments you had to make along the way? I mean, for me personally, when I when I was working in a private strength and conditioning facility, it was um, it was it was a lot, right? Like working with groups of, of four to six people, um, and you have to be very strategic in how you're setting up their training, right? Because you have some, at least where where I worked, I had some very high Division One level athletes, and I had some people that I had to teach how to do a a, a proper clean all within the same session. So moving to one-on-one coaching, especially in an online setting, um, in terms of like the, just kind of the pace, I guess, definitely is a, a little bit easier on that front. But I do think that power, like w- with that said, I think there is a lot that goes into like the nitty gritty with powerlifting that, that you might not have to worry about to the same degree with, with strength and conditioning. Cause ultimately that is an adjunct to their main sport training for, for strength and conditioning. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but I would say in, in some ways it's easier, some ways it's harder. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, learning curve is some of the tactical skills that aren't related to actually lifting and like the, you know, the attempt selection, uh, how to teach somebody how to warm up properly on meet day, all of those logistical considerations that you don't even think about when you're just lifting weights with your friends. 
in the gym and, and, and understanding how to do all that, I think is probably the biggest learning curve um, in my mind coming from like a, you know, we care about strength more generally to somebody who's like trying to make this a competitive outcome when there's more things on the line, there's more things you got to think about weight cuts, uh, you know, what to eat on meat day, all those, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 so let me ask you this question then. So, when you started into powerlifting coaching, what was the most difficult thing for you? Was it the biomechanic stuff? Was it the programming? Was it the meet day coaching? Because uh, just through my experience, like kind of getting interested in the coaching myself, I know there's things I'll be good at, but there's things I really don't have any idea on. I'll take one of your uh, potential answers there and, and definitely say biomechanics. Because I got, I got really interested in um, – exercise science research and like pursuing like, Oh, this is a possibility in terms of a career path. Like you can, you can help with resistance training studies. Um, and a lot of those are focused on program design. Um, and that's personally where I am just most interested. Um, so, you know, shout out to the Steve DeNovi's YouTube channel for, for helping us, uh, programming minded people, not, not that you're not Steve, but help us out with biomechanics a little bit because, I think that's definitely been the something I've kind of, I don't want to say force myself to learn, but I'm like, okay, this is very important. And I think we can get a little bit too programming minded. So just from an initial interest standpoint, like uh, the, the programming stuff, there's always more to learn, but I think it's, it's, it's easier to kind of grasp in terms of the, the research. Um, but the biomechanics stuff, at least for me was, was a bit tougher. I don't have too much to add there. I think um, it, it's, it's, it was hard because I'm the exact same way as Josh. It's like programming is like our first love. It's pretty easy for us to read about, think about all that kind of stuff, which is probably a blind spot to some degree, but I, I guess we're aware of it. Um, but finding the way that biomechanics fits into that is definitely something that kind of came second. Um, and, and it's something I'm still working on um, to understand how that kind of all fits together. Um, I know, I, I think I, I don't know if I messaged you, Steve, or not, but when you made your distance travel video, like, that was just a huge light bulb moment for me. I just never thought about it that way. It's just, like, one of those things that you get so tied to, to looking at things from a certain perspective, and when you kind of reflect and take a step back, and, like, this is obvious, but I just I just wasn't thinking about it in that way, and I think once you can can take that step back and come at some, something from a different perspective, you can usually align it with uh, what you liked in the other area in the first place. Yeah, I think with the biomechanics part, like going back to kind of what Josh talked about, I can't. I, I was a personal trainer for ten years. There's a there's a difficulty in teaching a forty year old completely detrained female how to goblet squat, but you're getting them just to be able to squat. And once they do, you're very very happy about that. There, there's not much past that you need to go once they have a decent movement pattern that kind of satisfies the the foundations of what a squat is. Whereas in powerlifting, like we're we're, we're working with elite people. I mean, there's some people who are just doing it more on a, a basis level of a hobby, but I know at least all three of us have some clients who are trying to be a, a world-level athlete. Angelo's trying to get there. He's, he's, he's two places off. Um, but uh, Dick, that's when, like, every little detail sometimes comes in of, like, how can we optimize force production? Now, we, we can get too far with that. That's also a skill as well within coaching is, like, how far do we go before there's diminishing returns of, like, technique practice but uh but we're obviously we're just getting into little nitty-gritties of like the, the every little detail can matter there uh, which is far past anything we're going to see usually in kind of that in-person setting with with high school athletes or general population or things like that where general movement's going to take most of what we need and carry them forward 
I, I think so much. <laughs> I yeah, I was yeah. just nodding my head the whole time. Um, I think you just did a really good job of articulating what I was trying to say in terms of the transition from strength and conditioning to powerlifting. Like the the thing about powerlifting is <laughs> your training is so close to the sport, and it, and it's so quantifiable, right? It's it's staring you at the face. How much weight did you lift? Whereas you can kind of like dance around it in terms of strength and conditioning. Like at the end of the day, is your free throw percentage really related to, to how strong your guys got in the, the weight room? Not really. Right. Like it's hard to quantify. So I will 1000% agree, Steve. Where, like the analogy I, I immediately thought of when Steve was talking is like, cause we both came from a, a similar, at least I was working as a personal trainer and was working in research with clinical populations. So like, the, the lens of exercise uh, technique you're using there is completely different. And the, the analogy that came to my mind is you kind of lose um, sensitivity to your technique palette. Like my ability to see to see certain things is like you kind of get to, yeah, it looks, looks good enough, that looks passable when, when you're working with people who aren't at the highest level of sport looking to optimize every little thing. So um, that I relate to that a ton. And as time has gone on, I've realized how big of a blind spot that is. So that's definitely area we've hopefully tried to address i'll throw out a little uh plug for someone uh maybe you guys have heard her do you know who megan bryanton is yes, so I, if, I like her stuff a lot a lot of our listeners probably have no idea who that is as far as i know that is the only person in this world who got a phd in powerlifting kinesiology I, I don't know if there's anyone else so she literally got her phd in powerlifting kinesiology in the squat bench and deadlift so if, if anyone is looking for some biomechanics help as well um, I had a lot of influence from her because she's literally, that's what she studied. Um, she, I think she has a fairly affordable biomechanics course on her website. So if anyone's looking for some help on that, um, I would recommend yeah. they check out yeah. Megan Bryanton. Genetic advantage is what her business is called. It's really, yep. really good. I second that. Wait, so. was that the same person when we made the Detroit Lions, Kevin Can? Yeah. Okay. That loved it. <laughs> yep. Just right. <laughs> a clarification. Now I know who she is. All right, cool. Yep. Um, all right. Well, let's let's get in some nerdy stuff. I got a couple topics here. Um, some that are kind of a little bit more softballs that I know exactly what your answers will be because you talk about it a lot. Some that I'm, I want to debate a little bit on some stuff and see if we got some differing opinions. So first one I'll bring up because this is kind of what launched you guys um, is your view on submax training and kind of the principles that drive the progress of it. And I think it was, it was Brian Miner was who you did a, a guest piece for, and that's kind of where I think. Uh, I mean, most people who know of you, probably that was the launching point. Um, uh, most people in powerlifting have understood that submax training was something that has, in some way, been beneficial. Um, it, the varying degrees of what submax is. If you guys want to kind of give an idea of, of where your viewpoint came from, of why submax training can actually work, like why we can actually lift things that are not our max loads and be able to somehow increase our force production where the, the general thinking was the more motor units you recruit or the heavier you lift, the more motors you recruit. That's how you increase force production. That's the only way. Yeah. So I think the first, the first question you need to ask yourself is, is what is submax training? Cause I think that right off the bat, you can, you know, start to get a little bit lost in, in what we're trying to say and the point we're trying to make. Um, so, I'm sure when I say submax training, different people are going to think of different things. What we're primarily talking about would probably be best defined as some people call it relative intensity. So basically how hard you're working 
compared to if you were to go all out with that given load, right? So if you have a load that you can use for eight repetitions at an RP10, you know, is there something magic to getting in that RP8, RP9 range with that zone? Or can you hang out a little bit further from failure with that zone, uh, with that load? Um, and basically, really all we're saying is that once you have a given load, there doesn't appear to be additional benefits to training closer to failure with that given load. So in other words, if you have your, your eight rep max load, right? If you were to do eight reps, that's an RP10. Instead of hanging out around six to seven reps, you know, RP8, RP9, you can break that work up into more sets, do, you know, a couple sets of three, a couple sets of four, something like that, probably spare a little bit of fatigue and potentially get downstream benefits as a result of that. Um, and one of the, the benefits of that is greater force production. So, okay, on the surface, we're training easier, right? Like we're, we're not training as close to failure. What do you mean I'm not producing as much force? Like that just doesn't make sense. But when, when you kind of turn that on its head, it, it actually makes a ton of sense when you think that, okay, when, when am I going to be able to produce the most, the most force? It's when I'm as fresh as possible, right? It's going to be that first rep of the set. As you get tired within the set, as fatigue accumulates, your force production capacity is going to decrease. That's why the barbell slows down as you approach failure. So if you think about a one rep max squat, one rep max bench or deadlift, that's a test of maximal force production. So through the lens of specificity, you're actually more, uh, through the lens of specificity in terms of force production, you're actually more specific earlier in the set. So that's really all we're saying. Um, and, and, and there is some conflicting research, but in, in general, it's, it's pretty well established that you don't have to train to or, or very close to failure to, to maximize strength gains. Um, and yeah, that's, that's just really what it comes down to. I think a lot of people conflate our stance with, oh, you train lighter. So instead of using 75%, use 65%. It's definitely not what we're saying. We're saying at a given load. So hopefully that, that kind of answers the question. Bringing in the caveats real quick. Um, so just two things that come to mind. The first is like generally, uh, sometimes people will misunderstand what we're saying. Like Josh said, that think we're advocating for training with lighter weights. That's not true. The second thing is, our arguments are always in our heads, and sometimes we forget to say this in the context of already practicing heavy top sets. So, like, if you're creating a minimal effective dose training program for somebody who cares about one arm strength, that's the first thing you're going to put in there. You're going to put in, if I only have three days to train, I have 30 minutes per session, probably squat, bench, deadlift, or variations thereof, and you're going to do top, single, double, triple, something like that. That's that's what you would do. So that's the first thing that goes in there, those Heavy top sets, generally over 85%. You can configure those in a bunch of different ways. It doesn't have to be singles. It doesn't have to be triples. It doesn't have to be an RPA. It can be whatever. Just That's just kind of a concept we like to hold steady. Then the stuff that Josh comes into play, uh, the stuff that Josh said comes into play for our volume work. So if we're going to do a top set, then we're going to do three sets afterwards, the question becomes how should we organize that volume to be the most specific? And that's when Josh's stuff primarily applies. Now, the third thing, let's remove those top sets for whatever reason. Let's say somebody couldn't tolerate them. Let's say somebody doesn't enjoy them. Then there's a second scenario. Okay, so we remove these heavy exposures that are going to familiarize people with what it feels like to grind against the heavy weight. That's an instance where our argument might be a little bit different because now you don't ever have exposures to those high RPs, what it feels like to grind, what it feels like to get anxious before a tough lift. So that might be an implication where we do program one of those sets that's like five reps at RP9, 
So it's not like a black and white thing. It's not, we're always doing it this way. We're always training at 65% for triples like that. That is usually uh, a potential mischaracterization of what we're saying. We try to caveat it as best we can. Of like, this is in the short to moderate term, what we try to do to, to maximize strength, but it's always in the context of those other things. So within that, you, you kind of mentioned this, Josh, that submax is this kind of broad term that it doesn't really have a great definition, as well as the term junk volume. That's thrown a lot around a lot. But like, what is junk volume? And a question, I, I actually asked this to Mike Zordos, Greg Knuckles, and Eric Helms on the original pre-launch mass webinar. I asked them, like, what is that point of diminishing returns? Like, where's that cutoff? And at that point, I don't think there was a great answer. I, I actually think their answer was, like, somewhere in the 6 to 8 RP range is where we want to be. And they, 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 I don't think there was definitive research that could say if we're below 6 RP, we could get any benefit from that. Would you be able to define that better now? Or is that still just really broad and you're just going it, to so, – there's, there's no great definition? All right, so I'll give a scientific answer first and my opinion after that. Okay. Scientific answer is – it's going to be really, really hard to nail down a specific RPE threshold because we're dealing with a few limitations in research. One, that's often almost never reported. So, like, there's very few studies that actually have the lifters rate their RIR. Um, so, like, that's that's the first limitation. That's almost never reported. So, what that leaves us with is estimations based on flawed methods. So, we have to predict people's RPE based on, okay, they did 70% for sets of five, so on average, that's going to be whatever, seven reps in reserve or something like that. But then we look at the research on we bring in 50 people and all have them do a set to failure with 70% of 1RM, and we have a range of six to 26 repetitions. So there's literally essentially no confidence we can have in predicting those RARs based on the protocols that they perform. So that's a limitation. You know, we have other objective methods like some of the velocity stuff, but a very similar thing applies where, you know, we could have a general guess, but based on the individual variation, it's going to be essentially no confidence. So with that in mind, I don't think we can confidently give a scientific answer. What I will say is that from a practical perspective, in the studies that would use these more submaximal, lower RP approaches, it seems that as so long as you're training above uh, 75% of 1RM or so, which would be about a 10 rep max for most people, you can pretty much break up the work however you want and get similar strength gains. So what that may mean is that there's like this, I don't know, 8 to 10 RAR threshold that if you drop below, then maybe the work is no longer as uh, effective in terms of diminishing returns. So that that's, again, a very limited answer. But that's kind of the way I think about it. Is so long as we're using a heavy enough load, so 75% plus, we can pretty much break up the work however is practically feasible. If we want to spare a little bit more fatigue, maybe we drop it down to doubles. We want to do a few less sets because somebody's really sensitive to unracks. Maybe we go to a little bit higher, like sets of five. But you can kind of you know do whatever you want within that range. And so I think a good point to kind of summarize some things we talked about there is that I th and where some of the misconception and probably means come from sometimes um, about low RPE training is that it's more about the percent weight on the bar versus the RPE sometimes. Like you can do a low RPE with heavy, heavy weight and still see benefit from it. But if you go put 30% on the bar and do a two RPE set, maybe that's not really going to have much benefit. A really, a really good way that I recently tried to explain it. Chris Beardsley, who's a really good person to follow as well, made a recent post about talking about these concepts uh, or, or similar ones. 
And he talked about how the RPE in terms of like Borg RPE, so this isn't reps and reserve, this is just like subjective exertion, that should be 10 on every single rep because you're trying to move the bar with as much force and as much velocity as possible in every single repetition. But the RIR is going to be dictated by the load. So that's kind of the kind of the way we want to think about it. But yeah, that's exactly right, Steve. You're using heavy weights, and because we are just manipulating how many reps per set you're doing, it ends up with the set being farther from failure. But because of the load, it's still not you know 50 RIR or whatever if you're using 30 percent more. Okay. All right. Well, real quick before hold on. Really quick before you get to the next question. Um, based on your observations, how many people do you see in powerlifting utilize uh, submax? Because I think that most powerlifters totally do, like, and very successful powerlifters do. I think, I mean, again, based on just my observations, I think it's something that does get, it does get uh, over-exaggerated a bit, but I think most successful powerlifters, just based on their programming, do that anyways. So that brings up a really good point, I'm, and I'm glad that I, I can kind of make this point in answering that question, is that let's say a typical training session in like a modern powerlifting program. Well, let's just say it's a very like simple program, right? Like no fancy velocity tracking or anything like that. Work up to a single RP seven to eight, then do sets of four to six at RP six to eight. De again, depending on how you define it, that's some max in, in some way, but it, 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 it might be not, not as like, Again, submax in terms of relative intensity, like I mentioned before, like how many reps you can do with that given load, that we might say is 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 also efficacious or or also an effective way to go about it. But but here's the important thing to keep in mind is that a lot of people's RPs six to, six to eight that they log in practice might be more like seven, six, five reps in reserve. Um, so that is something we really like to add is that. Um, and it's funny because people, like the same people that will say, oh, go below RP6, like I'm not even training hard, like what do you mean? Like you're just going to sleepwalk through the gym? And then like you see a, a set that's rated at RP7.5 and I'm like, have you ever like, have you ever taken a set to failure? You have at least six, six or more reps in the tank. So Angela, to answer your question, yes, again, like some max to some degree, but I actually think a lot of people are doing what we're saying already. Um, but I would prefer you just get your RAR accuracy down, right? Actually, actually get good at rating your RPs, and then we can kind of explore these other uh, programming strategies, which which might not even be that big of changes. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I just got two things to add quickly. I think the first thing is one thing I find really really fascinating is what I call the social conditioning of like RPE ratings. So like almost everybody kind of like knows in quotes that the RPE should be within six to 10 if it's kind of an effective set. So what that does is when you're performing volume work, in addition to the fact that it's harder to rate the farther you get from failure, you're going to put six instead of three. Like you're not going to write a three down on your piece of paper just because that's never talked about. So like when you're thinking about like, I just did a work set, I'm going to write down RPE five or six because that's what's talked about is kind of the bottom end of the range rather than being like, Oh no, I probably, probably could have done eight reps. Uh, and, and adding that in addition to what Josh said about RER accuracy, um, one thing I always like to keep in mind, I was literally talking to a client about this today, is like, I think it's important to always talk about too, like where we came from uh, when, with this idea. So like, 
we had just got, at least me personally, I know I did, was like really into the the very black and white effective reps idea, which Chris Beardsley also uh, wrote an article about that kind of stemmed a lot of people thinking about this, which basically means that only the last five reps in a set to failure are the effective ones. And so that thought process is a little bit different, right? So I would be prescribing training, pro- training protocols for myself of like 10 sets of three at RPE nine. So I was like, just be eating myself into the ground with stuff like this. And so then I like try these alternative approaches and I was like, Oh, okay. This, this can be efficacious. And then we started to think about it a little bit more, but I think, yeah, it's the main thing is our accuracy. There is like tons of people are doing what we're saying already. They're just not totally aware of it. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jeopardy answer to uh, Angela's original question is what is dynamic effort method? So, I mean, we talk about, you even said new school powerlifting, but even old school was using some aspects of these same principles in there. I mean, if you, I'm sure within your programs, there's going to be a day where you push to higher exertion rates and there's going to be a day you push to lower exertion rates. We were, we were all doing this undulation. We've all done this undulation forever because just naturally you realize if you go really heavy one day, you probably can't go as hard the other day just to manage fatigue to be able to then recover for that primary day again. So I think uh, just to jump in and and kind of echo that, I think, we're, we're, we're not saying like train easier or like, you know, don't work as hard on a given set because you can like, why, why, like, why would you like, we're not saying, Hey, train easier because it's, it's about the same results. And, um, you know, why would you train harder if you have the option to train easier? That's not really the approach we're, we're taking to it. We're, we're, we're trying to maximize the effort under the curve that you can apply the, and, and, and actually allocating that effort wisely. So if we employ some of these these programming strategies where the back off work, yeah, it's it's a little bit lower RPE. Um, we're not doing as many as many reps with a given load, you know, kind of hanging out maybe four to five reps in reserve. That means when we circle back around to our next heavy heavy top set on that load, we can push it a little bit more. So we're we're just allocating our effort as wisely as possible is really what it comes down to. All right. So next thing was something I wanted to talk about because I think we'll partially have differing views as well as I really like to get your thoughts on this. Um, and it's not something I've really heard you guys talk about. So it's a little, little outside the normal things I think you're asked about. So, um, I wrote a post about this and you guys may have read it. Um, my general approach to calculating like workload and it in, is a static set count. So like if, if someone is doing 10 total sets of squat, Regardless of the rep scheme, I keep that static through almost every single block. Now, within that, there, this could get really detailed and be an hour-long Steve Denovi video of how I'm going to make sure that tonnage doesn't have some massive disparity one block to another where we're going from where we're going from sets of eight one block just to sets of three. We're going to be able to kind of within those whatever 10 sets allocate different rep schemes to be able to kind of have some tonnage just a little bit closer. But then there's other coaches that are very much into like, um, if I do three by six, if I'm going to do sets of three, then I'm going to do six by three and I'm going to match repetitions. And I know like Mike Tashir has the stress index, which I've kind of looked at. I can't say I'm an expert on that, but I've looked into that and it just really hasn't clicked with me that I was like, okay, that's going to work within my system. I I don't know if that was a perfect system to say, okay, this is exactly how we're going to be able to measure sets of three stress versus sets of six stress and be able to hit the right tonnage versus set count. What's your guys' thoughts on that, of how you kind of allocate set count versus rep schemes and also playing with intensity on that? Good question, Steve, and I think it's probably one that at least I know I've changed my mind on over time. Um, I think this is another kind of, you know, take people that are really analytically minded on programming, spreadsheet nerds, and like, okay, how do the numbers equate between 
phases and, and we have all these thoughts in the back of our mind while we're doing those calculations. You know, I think I would have been more on the the side of like, okay, if we're going from like a hypertrophy oriented phase to a strength oriented phase, take like three sets of eight and make that six sets of four. The way we, I usually used to do it. I don't want to speak for Josh. I'll let him go here in a second. But um, the way I usually used to do it was what's called relative volume, which would literally just be the percentage of one RM times the number of reps. So that would get you to a similar rep total um, in the second example. If the load is the exact same, but if the load is increased a bit, which is usually what I would do, um, then the reps would drop off a little bit. So it wouldn't be you wouldn't be increasing two things, right? You wouldn't be increasing the load and the the relative volume because you're doing the same amount of reps. So I would decrease the reps a few if I'm going to increase the load. But the way I've kind of come to it now is is kind of just this concept of stress and I don't really have a mathematical way of doing it honestly and it's I would say it's more in line with kind of what you do I probably will add a few more sets than, than just keeping sets static but if I'm going from you know four sets of eight maybe it's going to turn into five sets of four rather than you know eight sets of four or something like that um, the reason I kind of slowly changed my mind on this was a um, I think there's factors that don't get accounted for when you when you double the set count um, in terms of like, especially on squat, the unracks, um, the mental fatigue associated with doing that many sets, I think is something that's non-negligible. Um, and then the other thing too, is like, this is also a pro and a con of our strategy is that by doing kind of more force under the curve, that is a volume metric that is unaccounted for. You do double the sets, right? So if I'm taking the same exact workload, decreasing it into more sets where I can have more peak force over the cross of that volume. That's something that I'm, I'm increasing as well. So it's just something else you got to keep in mind. And I think that kind of comes back to this concept of just like, I want to match stress. I don't really have a mathematical way of doing that, but it's, you know, add a set here, add a set there, try to equate things as best I can, but it's not definitely not like always double the sets anymore. I don't know about you, Josh. I don't have much to add, Steve. I'm, I'm curious your, your response to that. So I'll say two things that I can give my, maybe my approach will, clear this up a bit too, because I think one thing people get stuck on is if you go to three by six to six by three, you're being very static that everything has to be six by three or three by six. Like if, let's say if I had four sets of five and I have a static static set count of four, if I wanted to prescribe sets of three next block, maybe I'm going to do two by three and then I'm going to be doing two by six. So I can make sure that the tonnage in some way is going to have some way to kind of equate so that we're not deviating too much from this tonnage that someone, someone responds to. Because that's what I've kind of found is I, I feel like most people have a certain tonnage that they respond to. And that probably relates to distance traveled and overall recovery and workload. And from there, I want to just, I don't want to deviate too much from that. Not It's, it's not so much the typical Western periodization where you work from eights to sixes to fours to twos, which is going to drastically change your volume load. And if I try to equate volume with twos versus eights, now I got this person in the gym doing 10 sets of two. And I think I've heard you guys talk about this before. Now we're talking about issues of like, does this person actually have time allocation to do 10 sets of two on squat, then do 10 sets of two on bench press, then do 10 sets of two on deadlift, and then have any energy whatsoever and or time left to do any accessory movements. So that's where I've kind of fallen into the static set count and then manipulating reps up and down. Maybe it's even a, maybe it's a primary day is dropping and a secondary day is actually raising in rep count to just somehow stay within this tonnage. We found that's effective volume dose for them. Yeah. I'll, I'll kick it to you pretty quickly here, Zach, but I, I think 
kind of circling back to the research on proximity to failure for strength, a lot of, so, so, so Zach mentioned that it's hard to determine the actual reps and reserve they're training at, right? And, and one of those reasons is because a lot of these studies use a, a, a concept called velocity loss. Um, it, it, it's actually pretty simple, right? You just do, uh, you just do your set. And once you, once your velocity decreases a given percentage, you stop the set. Right. And if you have a higher velocity loss, you're going to be closer to failure, lower velocity loss, farther from failure. In, in a lot of those studies, they equate the number of sets. Right. So if I was in a high velocity loss group, so closer to failure, I would do the same number of sets. Let's, let's call it four. And I would I would just do those four sets closer to failure. If Zach was in a, a lower velocity loss group, he would do those same sets, four sets, but just stay shy of failure. And in those studies, pretty reliably, the lower velocity loss groups, the ones staying further from failure, they see better strength gains, right? And, and that's way less reps, um, typically. So it is important to keep in mind that, and, and this is one of the reasons I've personally shifted from, okay, we have three by six, now we go six by three. I've, I've moved away from that. Um, I think if you can sustain that, that three by, or six by three and you have the time for it and you can stay focused, I do think it, 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 it can work quite well. But I think it's important to keep in mind that even if your tonnage goes down for that specific slot, I think you'll be okay because I, I, I even for hypertrophy, man, I think there's something there about the, the first reps of the set when the load is heavy enough. Um, those, those are really where the, the money's at. So that can even be like a taper strategy is just say, I have three by six, boom, cut it to three by three, boom, there's your taper. So I just wanted to add that caveat and then Zach, I'll, I'll let you more directly respond. I'm not trying to thought on, so I was just listening to what you're saying. I'll, I'll throw one thing in there. Maybe it'll get you on track. Is I mean, there's one thing also that we're not talking, or you kind of mentioned this here, is like there's also differing times of where we are driving intensity as a, as a main driver of stimulus. There's times of volume being the stimulus and times of intensity. And as intensity goes up, volume typically has to come down a bit to kind of allocate those recovery resources. So that's where where a three by six and a three by three might eventually be the same stress index per se, because at three by six, we may be doing at lower like exertion levels because we found that typically hypertrophy doesn't need those higher exertions where maybe strength output does need that. And that's somehow allocating the same stress, which is why I think, and this is also going back to like, I, I'm definitely different in how I program than Mike to share. He programs everything around like eight or nine RPE and does probably a minimal set count versus I'm probably programming more total sets. If we had the same athlete, but at a lower RPE range because of that. And that's where we both might see the same progress with an athlete. We both are good coaches, but we're also different on that volume, the, the intensity spectrum range of kind of how we're allocating our, our main stimulus. And that just brings us back to like something we like to harp on all the time is like, you kind of said it earlier, we probably don't view it maybe the exact same thing as like volume per se, but like we think there's like this concept of like training dose that, that people respond to. Um, and there's a ton of different ways you could configure a program to kind of meet that. So we could have a very high RP, low volume, um, very specific exercise selection program versus a program that's more varied, maybe a little bit less RP, maybe a bit more volume. And if those kind of lead to similar, what we'd call training dose, which is something you can't actually quantify, but it's just a theoretical concept. We think in general that's going to allow the athlete to progress. There might be one case that's a little bit better for the other based on psychological factors and maybe some other things. But in general, um, we think there's some flexibility there. But the only thing I was going to say, Steve, is, is I think it's a really good point to talk about how you don't have to lock yourself into these like 
arbitrary programming constructs like that you have to do 10 by 2. One thing I'll do occasionally is I, I don't have a really good name for it. I just call it like waterfalling reps. So like because you, you're fresher earlier in a session and you haven't accumulated as much fatigue, you can tolerate higher rep sets before there's a large amount of velocity loss. So then you kind of slowly decrease the, the reps over the course of like an exercise slot. So maybe you do two sets of four, two sets of three, two sets of two. So you don't have to do 10 sets, but you're still getting a similar amount of reps in. The concepts are similar to uh, decreasing the exercise fatigue and all that stuff and, and lowering the RP a little bit, but you don't have to do quite as many sets. Um, can we coin a new phrase? Let's start it right now and make it popular. It's going to be called Iowa. Intra-workout undulating periodization. There you go. Cool. We're going to be rich. Yes. <laughs> Let, let's make sure we trademark that real quick, put that out there, make some T-shirts. we got Iowa. It's two white lights, Thanks. though. It's all under two <laughs> white lights. Yes. And, and then you realize that just by doing a top set and back offs, you were already doing Iowa. But we still win. We still profit. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, and one thing we were kind of talking, I'll, I'll bring this up because I think it was an interesting, it was actually a conversation we were having before we hopped on the podcast because um, you were asking me about a story I put up the other day. Um, and you've also kind of mentioned the distance traveled aspect um, is Mark from Texas Barbell Syndicates doing a little uh, experiment to actually track his distance traveled so that he can use that in his work output ratio. And we, we both, all, we'd all talked about before, like um, hopping on the podcast that that probably isn't going to give you a ton of info on an individual basis because we there's other ways we can know that i mean we can just use the eye test to know distance travel we can also total tonnage and we can find general things but it, it would be very interesting to see now how that creates um comparisons between lifters and if we actually see now a very standard bell curve of work output so that if we measured someone's distance traveled we could then know where their baseline of work output should be and know that kind of dosing of the standard bell curve, and then from there, track up or down based off of obviously their outlier individual characteristics. So, so that that idea really appeals to me because, you know, we we kind of talked at the, the the beginning of the podcast about how, you know, we're we're involved with research, and that's where we get a lot of ideas and and and, and whatnot. And at the end of the day, the research is just a starting point. So I mentioned research um, making us better coaches, coaching making us better researchers. It, that, like, I think that's that you hit the nail on the head. That if we could get a slightly better starting point, I think that return will kind of compound, right? So, yes, ten to twenty sets per muscle group per week, like that might be a decent starting point. But Zach might respond really well to just doing four sets of squat per week, right? And he's going to be way far off that. So, if we could start him instead of starting him at twelve sets per week, if we could start him at six sets per week, that would be awesome, right? So. I'll, I'll kick it to you, Zach, but that's where my head went. And I'll say real, I'll say real quick, and you kind of, this is kind of alluding to what you said and why this could be even like the step further of this. I'm sure you guys have found lifters in similar weight classes tend to have more similar training programs um, and, 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 of, and of sex. A, a, a male 105 kilo lifter is going to have, and other male 105 kilo lifters are probably going to have more similarities in their program than a group of female 52 kilo weightlifters, which or 52 yeah kilo powerlifters, um, mainly because there's probably some aspect of distance travel there where if we could somehow equate that distance traveled, we could probably find them all being semi comparable in some manner. That makes funny sense. That. It's funny you say that, Steve, because like that was one of those things that you know I've heard a ton of experienced and uh, you know seasoned coaches talk about that kind of bell curve of like. Um, long range or short range motion 
typically more female to very short range motion, typically, you know, super heavyweight male, um, in terms of like volume needs. Like that was one of those things as like an inexperienced coach is like, this isn't, this isn't evidence based. Where, where'd you guys get this? This is done. And I like, kind of try to ignore it, um, at first, but that, that honestly has been something I have, I have found, even though, despite trying to have like this bias against it when I was, when I was more inexperienced that, you know, on average people that have, you know, a really high bench arch are going to take more stress on, on bench. And I think when you put out that distance travel video, it kind of clicked for me like that seems to make sense because that's part of the bullying equation. So I, I think, I think I'm on board with that. All right. So we're talking about kind of individual individualizing programming and actually some, t- some talks I had today based on an Instagram post I did was about elements of tracking data. So my question for you guys is what elements of data tracking have you found most useful uh, in your system of programming? So Mike T has come up a couple times in this, uh, this conversation, and we definitely draw a lot of, of inspiration from reactive training systems and how they focus on being outcome oriented. Um, so I actually just thought of this the other day, so you guys can tell me if it's, if it's stupid, but I think the, the, the athletes should absolutely be process-driven, right? They need to focus on executing their next set as well as possible. But the coach should be outcome-driven, right? Going back to the strength and conditioning versus powerlifting coaching. Powerlifting coaching is staring you right at the face, staring you right in the face how, how things are trending, right? It's, it's very objective. So point being is we like to keep our finger on the pulse of, of estimated 1RMs and how those are trending. Um, and ultimately what goes into that, you know, we, we kind of can have our starting point based on research. Um, we can use the research to inform troubleshooting, but ultimately we need to follow what, you know, what seems to correlate with that, with that outcome. So really focusing on, okay, we made X change, right? Just subjectively note that. How did we see the, the response as a result of that? Um, and then on a, on a shorter time scale, we do do some like pretty extensive athlete monitoring stuff. Um, I mentioned Drake when I mentioned Drake and Josh at the beginning of this podcast. Um, he did his master's degree at uh, Northern Iowa, and he worked with uh, the strength and conditioning teams there. And he has like some really fancy stuff with like rolling averages and rolling standard deviations of um, different validated athlete monitoring questionnaires. So basically the way it works on our end is every week I have an athlete, they fill out this, this questionnaire and I have a system so that when soreness is, is much higher for, for a given muscle group than it normally is and it, and it exceeds a given threshold, then it kind of alerts me, right? Or if soreness is way lower, it kind of alerts me. So there's kind of these thresholds and really what I view that as is as a conversation starter. Right. So if I notice that it's not like, okay, soreness is high. So we decrease volume by 20%. That's not how it works. It's, oh, Hey, what's going on outside of the gym? Um, that kind of thing. So, um, really I, you know, we are, we are talking about, um, you know, just quantifying training stress and training volume. And like Zach said, sometimes it does kind of come down to just subjectively saying how hard is this training? How stressful is this? Um, so I think good note taking and being outcome oriented, and keeping an eye on, on extraneous things week to week is really what it comes down to. Um, we've definitely tried some very fancy volume metrics some very fancy, you know, tracking average RPE, tracking all this stuff. But we've, we've kind of been like, hey, is this really informing what we, what we do when we sit down to program? If not, we, we probably don't need to focus on it. 
100%. Only thing I'll add, if it doesn't change your management, don't track it. So that was, well, you kind of point, hit on it on that last point there is when I had a person reach out through DMs and kind of ask me what I like, what am I doing for athlete monitoring and data tracking that I'm able to kind of find these individual things. And I realized none of what I do anymore is quantitative. I've, tr- yeah. I've tried a lot of that, like tracking all these data points and whatnot. And I, I just didn't get as much out of it as I thought. And uh, yeah, go ahead. One caveat I'll say is as a, as a, somebody who likes the data and wants it to be important, I bet this is similar to like when you hear bodybuilders talk about like, I don't need to track my macros anymore. I bet a lot of that is in your head and in your processes already. Well, yeah. Like, like you just talked like, like you just yes. talked about like not decreasing reps from eights all the way to every single set is a set of two that, you know, maybe you're not running the volume calculation in your head anymore, but because that has led to poor outcomes and that probably is because of a huge decrease in normative training volume, you no longer subjectively think that's a good idea when you go to write a training program. And that probably could be quantified, but you just don't have to. Yeah. A hundred percent. And like I am, and since in my head, I'm doing a lot of quantitative calculations. Like I used to like track estimated one RM off of all these sets. And I finally realized like after experience, like I just kind of know I can look at this set. I just, I just, I can kind of track it. And partially one of the answers to my tracking of data and like what makes success successful is I don't coach a hundred people. If I coach a hundred people, I probably am not tracking hardly any data usefully, or maybe I need like strict quantitative data because there's no way I'm going to remember a hundred people's training and all the training blocks they did. So um, I'll throw one thing in there so I don't get too long winded with this one element. And I don't know if you guys do this. I know I've had other coaches copy me on this that actually has been vital to tracking data is giving very fun names to training blocks and macro cycles, because then it makes it very easy to remember those cycles versus trying to remember block three, block four, block five blocks. When did, when did this good block happen? Oh, this block happened on quarantine lockdown number two. Like I'll, I'll remember something about it because it has a very like distinct, distinguished name. And usually I'm trying to like make that fun for the athlete. Um, like one, one of my athletes just changed their handle to dogs and training logs because that's her current block name is dogs and training logs. I'll remember dogs and training logs if it was a good block name because it's much easier to associate that with the productive training session. So little silly things like that can be almost sometimes more useful than what we think of like these deep, deep science-based stuff. Which partially, I'll actually ask you this. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll run into one more thing because Chance Mitchell and Eric Bodhorn were talking about this on the po- their podcast uh, um, about like where are we going to see ourselves five to ten year, years down the road in programming. And one of the things they were kind of talking about is like I, they didn't know if there was much more room to go. And I partially agreed with that in the sense that like I think where we could go is implementing technology, much like we've seen in like high level sports. But we won't do it because, one, there's probably not enough money in the sport to do it. And, two, are we going to get our athletes to sit there with a rep one device and track every single piece of data for every single set they do and be able to get anything from that? So, But I'll, I'll okay, pose that question if you agree with that. Or, two, where do you think we have room to grow within that, which obviously is what your job is looking to do as an academic, is where can we go with programming in the future? So, so Steve, just, just to clarify. Are you are you also taking the stance you don't think we have uh, much room to grow? I, no, I think we have room to grow. Okay. I don't know if there's going to be some. I, I don't. I don't foresee something revolutionary popping up. Like I, I like all of a sudden our minds are going to be blown and we're going to change everything we've ever done about training. I, 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 I. What would it take? What would it take to for the, for for you to reach that subjective classification? I think a new acronym. 
That, that, would, that, that would be that would probably be the, the pinnacle. If there's a new acronym that we are commonly using, that is like revolutionary <laughs> in my mind. And, and sometimes I, I mean it's 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 a tough question to answer because I think if we look back twenty years, we say, Oh, we're doing stuff entirely different. Well, if you look at every year from that, it was just this gradual shift. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I know we're going to change. New things are going to pop up. But I, I think we also hit an information revolution where we actually have people like you studying this over the last five to ten years that it has, has greatly increased our knowledge on this to where just like the the technological revolution, it's this, this massive uprising, and then we kind of slow down a little bit. And that's kind of where I think we're partially at right now. Maybe this is naive optimism, but I, I think over the next ten years, I think there'll be there will be something big. Um, now, th- this might be me conflating, you know, training in general with, with powerlifting. I think there is some low-hanging fruit with more general population stuff. Um, so starting to integrate some velocity type stuff. We, we mentioned RAR accuracy. Um, you know, using some velocity stuff in equipment for general population. Um, my head goes there. But for, for, for powerlifting specifically... Do, do I think there's going to be a revolution? I, I don't know, but I think there are potential avenues in terms of like equipment where we could really benefit. So like something that comes to mind is flywheel training. Is the research right now indicating that that's like a game changer? No, but I think we could, I think there is an opportunity for equipment to more effectively grow muscle. I, I, I think we have room to grow. So that. you're saying we should all buy breath belts. Precisely. <laughs> Zach, Zach, that goes against the grain on this show. Or, or, or should, we mean, all, should we all attach a resistance band to our deadlifts? Is that uh, is that a big one? <laughs> and the front. I don't know. It's it's an interesting question, and I, I don't. My initial thought was I, I tend to agree with Steve in the sense that I think good coaches have found out good methods. Kind of that's just that's what you get with experimentation. Um, but obviously the methods or, or the reasons why those methods are effective, obviously, is what we're always kind of un, un, unveiling more of the story about that leads us to these two different dovetails of like finding different things to try. Um, so I, I think I would agree probably we're not going to have a revolution of any kind, but there are a few things that come to mind that I think could be um, huge. Um, the biggest thing that comes to mind for me is that ultimately the limiter on somebody's career is, is injuries. So if we can start to develop, you know, preemptive training strategies or, or, or methods that allow people to stay healthier for longer, I think is ultimately going to allow people to reach higher ceilings of performance. So a few things that come to mind there. The first one is the concept of resensitization is something we talk about a lot. So if part of the general periodization model was a phase in which you're training with absolute barrel volume, so as low as you possibly can, to increase the yield of training further down the line so that, you know, Sean doesn't have to bench 40 sets a week or whatever um, in order to make progress on his bench. Could that help with injury management? I have no idea. But I guess there's reason to believe that some of those strategies could could be beneficial to increase the yield of training um, earlier in somebody's career that potentially allowed them to get to a higher peak. Um, so thinking about those concepts, I think could be beneficial. And then some of the things Josh said as well, um, there's a lot of research coming out about, you know, the importance of long muscle lengths for, for hypertrophy. And I think there's 
there's some muscle groups that don't get a ton of love um, in, in those positions. So there's probably some equipment that I would I would imagine is will come out um, soon um, to kind of get at that. Um, and then I think the the last thing that comes to mind is there's still we don't know a ton about neural adaptations in, in terms of very very advanced people. Um, there's a recent paper that came out that kind of talked about some of the unknowns in terms of the general model you're going to read in every exercise science textbook is that neural adaptations happen early in a program and then the rest of the strength gains you, you get um, later on are probably going to be predominantly from hypertrophy. And I think for the most part, I think that holds true. There's a ton of debate in the academic literature about this, but I think the, the main thing my, my mind has been opened up to is that I think there's a possibility um, for these adaptations that we don't often look at in research to, to happen for longer time frames. So point being, if there's something that we haven't looked at a ton, there's probably methods that we're not using uh, appropriately. So there's probably some, some low-hanging fruit there as well. So those are a few things that come to mind. I tend to agree with Steve, though. There's not going to be a huge shift in the way that we do things, maybe just different ways that we view it that might allow us to eke out a little bit more over time and be that slow shift that might get us to a greater peak over time. Well, here's, here's a hot take, and I might piss off some old-school powerlifters with this, this one. You can, guys can give me your opinions. Of why we probably won't see a revolution, we'll just see a steady increase in knowledge, is I'm going to say the revolution over the last five years or so has not been the actual like training, per se. It's been the fact that we've gone from the dude at the gym who owned a gym, was the powerlifting coach, to now we've got guys working on PhDs. We have people, I have my MBA, Sean's an MIT grad. I can't tell you how many powerlifting coaches I know who were ex-engineers, which obviously have a physics background and a better understanding of mechanics and whatnot, and are usually more analytical-minded people. I think we just had an influx of just smarter human beings into this sport that has driven the ability to take the knowledge we have and elevate that. At the, at the end of the day, if there wasn't, you know, the the program we have at, at Florida Atlantic University, um, you know, it's not it's not to say we wouldn't have gone into exercise science research, but we we might not be as focused on resistance training research. And if if you have smart students who are interested in this, they would follow this career path, right? The fact that there is this career path, I think, is is probably leading to that and, and feeding into it. Um, and you know, the I think that the advancement and just increase in the amount of exercise science research being done also contributes to that. People now understand that, yes, you have to work very, very hard to get strong. And, and the strongest people are couldn't have done that without, without training extremely hard for a very long time. But people also understand that, that that doesn't make you, you know, automatically the most knowledgeable person. So I think it's been kind of a, a two-way street, right? We have, hey, resistance training research, resistance training you know, being, being kind of a resistance training intellect is, is a path. And also the fact that, you know, some of that research has indicated that like the, the, the bro at the, the gym isn't automatically the smartest. The next thing that came to mind for me is that something, you know, social media gets trashed on a lot, but I think one aspect where it's potentially positive is just what I call like the shark tank effect. Um, so like, you know, when I was in high school, the strongest dude in my gym did 315 for a couple of reps on squat. And I thought that was just like, oh man, this dude's, this dude's a freak, like juicing, juicing for sure. And I was like, you know, that, that was just because that was the environment around me. 
um, you know, you have the, the juniors today that get to look up to, to Russ and, and Sean and, and all these guys that are just, you know, absurdly strong. And you've seen, you know, kids that are less than 20 years old just do absurd things because that's the environment they're immediately surrounded by and that's what they're aspiring to, to be. Um, so I think that has, um, you know, it has positive and negative effects. But I do, I do think the fact that, you know, when you start lifting weights, um, and you find out what powerlifting is, you Google powerlifting, you find Russ's YouTube channel, and that's immediately the, okay, that's what, that's what I want to, that's what I want to do now. And so that, uh, a 500 pound deadlift becomes just a, a stepping stone. It's no longer this, this aspiration of life to get to. It's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll hit that by, by next week or whatever. Like that's just kind of, it, it's transformed the, the mental game, um, part of it as well, I think. Yeah. I also think that people are listening to the people who aren't the strongest, quote unquote, in the gym anymore. Like, or I don't know what change happened, but that's kind of the case. Is where people are more willing to learn from people who have an educational background as opposed to the guy who does the most impressive thing. Uh, wasn't always the case, and I I always say this on Two White Lights and other interviews that I do. I got lucky in the sport. I stumbled across 3DMJ and Lane Orton right when I wanted to get any information about, really wasn't powerlifting, it was actually bodybuilding and nutrition. That's what I like. kind of had an initial interest in, and those were the people that I got hold of, and I got super lucky, because then I started listening to more of what they had to say when it came to exercise science and powerlifting, and they do base things off of actual scientific uh, research as opposed to this one guy at the gym telling me what exactly I should do because it worked for him in the past. I mean, think about, like, what Jeff Neppert has done. Just bringing these, you know, these a lot of researchers that might not even try to be on social media, he'll bring them on and interview them. Um, and I don't know how many millions of, of people keep in touch with Jeff's stuff. Um, so I totally agree. We have a lot of good forces working in our direction to improve this space. So, so Steve, going back to what you were saying, I think, I think it's only going to continue, right? Like we're going to have more and more talented people pursuing graduate school in this area, more and more people, you know, pursuing coaching and, 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 you know, two white lights bringing on different coaches, right? Because they think they're, they, they know what they're talking about, or at at least we've tricked you into thinking that. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of good things going in that direction. I was pretty clear we brought you on to figure out where Mike Zordos was, not for your information. I, we set that up from the beginning. Um, so I'm going to search hashtag Mike Zordos after this. It might lead me down a dark hole of the internet. Oh, wait, hold on. There. This is uh, actually because this worked last episode. So if you get to this point of the podcast, hashtag where's Mike Zordos. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> hashtag where's Mike Zordos. Because in, Post it. Because the powerlifting hashtag cancel perms was – trending pretty well where people are like what the hell does this mean and then they listen to the episode like okay now it all makes sense i was confused for about a week and a half so this is it this is all right so this is the easter egg people hashtag where's mike zordos put on your we'll story see this comes back around to us <laughs> <laughs> well you all right can, you so, can blame me i'll take the heat mike I've always, one of my dreams is to get in an argument with Mike in a good way, like one of his satirical, sarcastic arguments that he has with Eric Helms, where they just make fun of each other for an hour on a podcast, and then maybe they start talking about some relevant information after making fun of each other's totals. Um, that's what that's one of my favorite things ever to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
So, so I guess uh, getting into this whole conversation thing, has there ever been a point when you guys were just starting off getting your powerlifting coaching where you're releasing all this great information, but then someone else with just more clout has some just absolutely asinine wrong shit that they're preaching, but it gets more eyes on it because that said person has more clout? Has that ever happened to you? And if it has, describe like the absolute frustration. I think it absolutely has happened. Um, I mean, it, it happens all the time. Um, I think something, and, and this might not be the hot take you were looking for, but I actually, I actually think I learned this from from Zach because I think I would probably be more the type of person to be like, Zach, look at this absolute BS. Like, let's just let's just absolutely go crazy and, and make fun of how whatever the, this person is talking about. Zach's like. Wait, there there might be something here. Like, just like, yeah, they're probably wrong, but like, why do why do they think they're right? Like, what can we learn from that? So, I know this isn't a hot take, but I think there's always something to learn from that kind of stuff. Like, like there there was this I don't know where the heck it was, but like somebody shared a post just just because they thought it was funny that, and and, and it said, um, you know, what's more effective, the first rep of a set or a last rep of a set? Do I really need to explain this to you? And it's just like hardcore man like of course and, and we often talk about hey more force production at the beginning of the set there's probably some benefits there i'm like technically i i don't think that's right but i think that's a decent message for a lot of people um so again not the hot take but i think there's always something to learn even if somebody technically falls on on the wrong stance mm. yeah when we look one takes here I, I tend to agree like it it's easy to get like bothered about that, obviously, but like if you spent your time on social media getting bothered by people that you know have more clout or whatever, getting more attention, I think you'd be a pretty sad person. So, um, and there's just there's so many people that that have this right. So it's just like, I, I, the practical side of me is like, why even worry about it? There's there's no way that you can change it. Um, but like Josh said, I do, I do always try to view things from. And this definitely was not always the case. So I'm not trying to be like an enlightened centrist here. Like I definitely would get hot and bothered about stuff and get upset. And like definitely not always been the case, but over time I've tried to get better about this of like, like Josh said, like realizing that a learning from the way that those people think, the way those people communicate information can allow you to understand the way that maybe a more general audience may think. And that may help you communicate information more effectively and when we feel like people aren't getting what we're saying, it's often because we're thinking, we are thinking how we would receive the information and not how the general public may receive the information, which is something we've definitely had to learn over time in terms of like science communication or like just putting out content in general. Like a lot of the way you have to think is how are people going to receive this? Not necessarily what am I trying to say? So I think when you take what people like that say in good light, you need to understand like what is catching with people here? Like why is this? why is this being impactful or, or people are, are uh, relating to this in some way and then try to take that nugget of truth out of it, use that positive information to hopefully make the way that you communicate your information a little bit better. So I think, you know, it sounds cheesy, but I do think there's always something to learn from like every social interaction like that. Um, and it's just going in with the right attitude to, you know, try to take something positive out of it and learn how you can continue to make your communication more effective rather than getting, you know, sour that you're not the one at the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I, I I like that stance when it comes to that because it. I, I I've seen this happen before, 
occasionally when someone says something that is popular within the sport and you can see it's probably incorrect, it still kind of speaks to the culture of that sport. You know, and you can learn from it. You can understand, okay, what's the current what's the current mindset of the sport that is invoking this sort of thought process or this kind of thing, and you can learn a little bit better. But also, it helps you understand like the thing that you believe in more or your concepts a little bit more. Like I've seen that like in the past, where in disagreement with someone, I had a better understanding of what I was trying to push as far as either my thought process because. That's what arguing does. Arguing makes you understand the other side much, much better, and it makes you understand your own uh, understand your own side much better. And then you have actually a better opinion, a more validated opinion, because of that, because you actually took the time to do that. Or you just get more and more biased because you you put the the, the guards around you, and you don't want to admit you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And and I think I I think we get we've like when we're trying to think about how this is going to be received as opposed to what we're trying to say. This totally relates to the low RP stuff. Technically, what we're saying is not low RP. Technically, we're saying you should train with lower intercept fatigue. If I say intercept fatigue, nobody's going to know what the heck I'm saying. If I say low RPE, that's going to get more shares. That's going to get more likes. On one hand, more people are going to get exposed to this information and, and, and hopefully think somewhat critically about it. But on the other hand, it's it's technically kind of inaccurate, right? Like, so like, how do we balance that? And, and I think we've gotten we, we we've messed this up multiple times. But you're always kind of like hedging the, your bets one way or the other. Are we trying to make this so more people can take something away from it, or are we trying to make this so that we're technically correct and somebody that also has read all 14 relevant citations would agree wholeheartedly with what we're saying? Where, where do we land in the middle? I think I think that's that's something we're, we're always battling with. Mm-hmm. Okay. You said something shocking there. You're telling me every person who runs a meme page has not read all 14 citations. <laughs> I thought that was the requirement to run a meme page is you had to read all relevant research on any topic you post about before making fun of it. I mean, that's, that's written in the rule book for the meme pages I'm aware of. Um, but, okay, another thing with the meme pages... If we're getting if we're getting memed on something, that's also a learning experience. I remember the the first time it happened to us, we're like, "Oh, I'm gonna get like offended," but at the end of the day, like it's just a meme, it's just a joke, right? But just a meme, bro. Just a meme, bro. Um, but it's also like, okay, what what what's slipping through the cracks here? Um, is another way to to think of it. Um, I, 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 you, I react, that. you react. You react better than Angel and I. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just gonna go off Angela's point a little bit because I, I think when you do kind of self-reflect and I think the meme pages are a funny kind of vehicle for that, but like there's clearly something being misinterpreted there, right? Like you can view that in kind of one of two ways. You can get butt hurt and like get really upset that people, you feel like people are misrepresenting what you're saying, but at the end of the day, the only thing you can really change at that point is communicate the information better so it can't be straw man. So I, I think that's something we learned was like, you know, we, we may have came a little bit too strong with, like, saying low RP is, oh, it's, it's better, it's shiny, it's new. And we didn't often contrast that with some of the benefits of, like, you know, training closer to failure is, is better for shifting of the loading demands in, like, a 1RM attempt. Like, something we, we have really tried to emphasize in our recent content anytime we talk about this is, like, there are benefits to that. We still think we talked about that in the older posts, but maybe didn't put it in a way that people got that, that contrast. So, 
um, yeah, I think just reflecting on the on the stuff is, is really important to try to take a nugget that's actually actionable. Yeah. Also, I guess I, I think two highlights can occasionally qualify as a meme page, depending on who you ask. Like, it's rare that we make memes, but also most of our content is like hovering between the meme and the actual like media part of powerlifting. So I don't know. I don't. I don't know. We're not on the council, though, right? Of what gets qualified as being like. I wasn't informed that low RP was meme worthy. So I don't think we're on the actual official council, which is insulting. Squat meme deadlift, if you're listening right now, which I know you are, add us to the council. I think we deserve to be on it. I, I don't even know what that meme page is, to be honest. <laughs> All right, well, they usually, I mean, they usually don't stick to anything exercise science related. You know, you just got Josh, you got a meme by yourself made right there with that comment. Yeah, you're about to get a meme. You're about to get a meme made about yeah, you. He will because he is like the official meme page of Two White Lies. Because every single time we do an episode, he memes something about it. So if you're listening, you need to meme Josh for that comment. Yes. I've never followed the meme page in my life. My approach is always if it's funny enough, I'm going to see it anyway. Never followed a meme page in my life. Same same with like like. The news. Never watch the news. Never do any of that. If it's important enough, I'll, I'll hear about it. Well, it's similar to the king of the lifts in that way, right? Like, we all follow these power lifters who get reposted, but if it's good enough, I'm going to see it eventually. If it's not, like, the thing. So, yeah, that's a good... That makes sense. I've done a lot of... Your hot take right there. What's up? Yeah. Don't, don't follow me in pages. <laughs> That's like yeah. That's uh, that's going against my roots because uh, I guess uh, I, I I mean I would say like I learned a lot of like powerlifting things through memes, which says a lot about my current knowledge of powerlifting. <laughs> but, but most of my education is based off memes. But you know, it's better than no education at all. So hold on. Speaking of like uh, some some hot takes, we brought this up at the beginning of the show, which I think is is. It can be an interesting conversation. Is there anything you guys have as coaches that could be construed as a hot take or like goes against the grain, if you will? Um, it it's possible that you don't have one, but I, I'm a, I'm just always curious, and so is Steve. Like, if coaches have that, like, if there's something like a take that they have that they're like, you know, I just think this is against the grain. But that's my opinion on it, and it might upset a few people. But that's what I think. Is there anything I'll, just within your coaching? I'll give you an example that helps lead some thoughts because I, I know one right off the bat that I am very biased about, and that's and the whole federation, well, every federation with the USA builds is great. I don't believe anyone should bench with their heels up. I think it is vastly inferior. I think benching with feet flat is I don't, vastly superior. I don't way follow to bench. any meme pages, but I haven't seen anybody bench with their feet up in a while or their heels up in a while. Is, is that actually like? Yeah. Is that even? So you're saying for like US, USPA? Oh yeah, USPA. Yeah. There's a good amount of USPA. Yeah. A good benchers too uh, press with their toes as opposed to their heels on the floor. I've seen that a good amount. Uh, yeah, I used to be one of them technically. And, and no one should lift their head up off the bench. That's even a stronger bias. Yeah. Little Zach, what's your hot take? Man, I'm I'm trying to think. Like I said, we're we're uh, team lukewarm takes over here. I'm not I'm not sure. I, I, I <laughs> well, I, I've got I already know a hot take you guys have yet that what is it? does it goes against your academia. 
that hypertrophy actually correlates to strength gain. Well, I mean, it, it undoubtedly correlates. That's not the question. Correlates in in what aspect? Are we doing cross sectional? Right, I'll, I'll do a I'll do a hotter take. Causes strength gain. There, there you go. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's the question. Technically, from a, a scientific perspective, you're you're. It, we cannot say that hypertrophy causes strength gain. Um, anybody that that you know adamantly says that is absolutely the case would would technically be incorrect. But I think we can uh, bridge the gap from a practical perspective. Um, I have a hard time believing that's a hot take, but yes, yeah. we do focus a lot on on growing well, the prime it's, movers. It's only a hot take in academia, from what I know, is that there's obviously it, it's it's. May not be politically correct to say it causes strength gain. Yeah. You wouldn't get through I mean, peer review if you if you uh, if you worded <laughs> it like that. Yeah, pretty much the like the obligatory way to write about it is you just have to acknowledge that there is a debate and you can say whatever you want. It's like it's just like saying um, no offense and then but and then you have a they have a comment. It's the same way. It's like hypertrophy may correlate to strength. Citation debate and then you can say whatever you want. It's pretty, it's pretty much how it rolls, but. Um, yeah, back to the hot takes. I don't know if I got much. You know what I figured out, though, with hot takes? It probably, if you have less hot takes that goes against the grain, that probably means you're more educated. Because my hot takes are so simple that they're based off no evidence. So, like, if I'm doing a coaching one, right, my hot take that I just thought of, because I I have a few, is, like, block pulls are stupid. Oh, I think block pulls are dumb. Of I think any, I think whenever I see them being done and programmed, I'm like, why are you doing that? It's kind of stupid, and that's my hot take. Like, do I have any evidence to back that up? No, but that's why it's a great hot take because, I, I and that's why you see sports pundits use a lot of hot takes because they're like, I'm just talking on my ass in this situation. I have no idea what's going on, but to me, block pulls are dumb. Josh will agree with this. I, I would imagine most people agree with this, but. Uh, like when people talk about specificity, there's a lot of people that do like SPD days. I would say a hot take that I have is that you definitely should have a session once you deadlift first. Um, I think the exercise order research is pretty clear that putting exercise first in the session is beneficial. So even in the, even in the guise of specificity, I think you should probably still have a session, especially close to a meet in which you would have the deadlift after uh, squatting and benching to gauge attempt selection. But I think purely from a training perspective, um, having a having a session which you deadlift first or fresh, I think definitely would be beneficial. I I would echo that because when Joe programmed a deadlift single for me and then my uh, my squats afterwards, I was like, "What's going on here?" I was like, "This is this is not normal. Why why are we doing this?" So, because we always squat before deadlift in competition. First. So I could agree with that one. I was. I was taken off my feet when he told me I had to squat after my deadlift. Okay, so the, my, my lens in which I'm seeing hot takes through has drastically changed over the last 10 minutes. I thought this was going to be like actually hot takes. We're talking about doing deadlift first in a session, rack pulls, and heels up in the bench. Those are things I wouldn't classify as hot takes. Um, so something that comes to mind <laughs> something that comes to mind for me is that I don't think block length uh, is something that matters a ton. That's not to say I, I wouldn't manipulate it at times, but I think a lot of people prioritize it over other things when I, when I don't think that should be the case. I think as, as long as you're in a reasonable range, 
there are a lot of other things I would focus on manipulating first before looking at block length. I think a lot of people can kind of say like week five, that's my week. This is when it's going to happen. I don't know if I buy that. Steve, that's a question for you. How many lifters do you have that are not typically running four to six week blocks? Almost everyone's in four to six weeks. And what I'll say, because I do believe in the sense that like, I think there is typically an optimal block length for a lifter, but also within that, I can manipulate things to make that same lifter like right. do a three-week block or a five-week block. It's just the amount of stress within that that they can handle. You can, you can change it however you want. Um, but what I'll say there is that there might be an optimal block length in the sense of like prioritizing prioritizing health and like decreasing injury rates. Is that how can we span out this workload to maximize strength, um, but also decrease injury risk in the sense of like overloading in, in individual sessions on a daily or weekly basis. So maybe five weeks is too long. And like, we're literally spanning out too far to where like we're, 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 there's some aspect of the adaptation and stress, stress rates where they're actually kind of just like, eh, I've already kind of adapted to the stimulus and I'm just kind of dragging this out where that same lifter, you could try and like push them too hard in three weeks and they're going to have higher injury risk because of that daily, that weekly workload. Cause so I do think in this, I have some lifters and this is kind of my model of thought here um, is I don't know how to describe it exactly, but we have the repeated about effects. Like you start to adapt to look some lifters adapt very quickly. Some lifters take longer to adapt. I think once that adaptation occurs, that's when the block length is the same for everyone. It's how long does it take for that repeat about effect to kick in to now where we've adapted and now we can overload. I think the overload time is pretty much the same for everyone. It's the adaptation period that differs. So, so my my Zach, that was my hot take, dude. I get to go first. Oh yeah, no, right, let's another, go, Josh. Let's fight, dude. Take, go for it. So so I guess my thought on that, Steve, is like <clears throat> the, the individuals might differ in their quote unquote adaptation period, and then you have their fixed period of overload, and ultimately the the difference in the adaptation period is what is going to lead to varying levels of the block length. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Wouldn't that be modulated by the degree of training stress, though, like the adaptation period? So how about, I'm going to use a case study to explain it better. Like I have a lady, um, we do a five-week block, and it starts out light, very, very light. Weeks one and two are extremely submaximal low RP. Um, I found with her that if we started out heavier in those prior weeks, she not only, she won, could not train for five weeks. We would need to deload sooner. But two, by weeks three and four, she was, we never saw any type of maximal strength output because she would just be so beat up from those first couple of weeks that uh, we, we would never get anywhere. Versus when I approached the model of really thinking the first two weeks for her, or first two to three weeks were just an adaptation period. And we were literally just allowing her to, uh, to adapt to the exercise selection, to the volume, to the loading. Um, and then we pushed higher RPEs and exertion on this, the last two weeks, it was like revolutionary for her training. All of a sudden, I mean, it was like night and day difference in her progress. And so that's kind of what I'm getting at there is like, I, I'll even you here's another way to put it. Um, you have the, the emerging strategies model. You do the same RP, you do the same exact workout every single week. Some people do really good with that. They do eight RPE week one. Week two, they do eight RPE again, but they're able to use more weight. Week three, and so on and so forth. What I actually see with a lot of the people in that model, though, they don't do eight RPE week one. 
They sandbag week one. They sandbag a little bit on week two. And then weeks three and four and five, maybe now they're actually hitting 8 RPE. Those are the people that needed that adaptation period versus there's some people that can just pick up that 8 RPE week one, run with that, find that block length or whatever of like when does that 8 RPE kind of pan out, and then that's when they're good to go. That makes sense. I don't. I definitely don't disagree. I, and I think you would agree in that depending on how you manage that introductory period where you're building up in the the, the protocol, right, whether that's number of sets, intensity, RP, et cetera, that will modulate when you hit your quote-unquote peak is, is ultimately what I'm saying. So, like, I think a lot of people identify as, yep, six weeks, that's that's me. I am six weeks. It's like, well, depending on how we we, we, uh, we create your intro, introductory week, the, depending on how aggressive that introductory period is, um, et cetera, that's going to be – that's going to modulate – the, the number of weeks. Now, this might sound like I'm saying, hey, the way emerging strategies does time to peak is completely wrong. I would be clear in saying that I, I don't think that. And I think uh, a lot of people can mischaracterize them because at the end of the day, those concepts work within their system, right? So so they say, hey, we don't do hypertrophy-focused periods. Um, we, we, we focus on what correlates with improving the outcome. That works within their system because they've set it up. They've set up the constraints to allow them to be able to detect that over time. Um, the way that we periodize things, we kind of proactively adjust things. Um, so I think it's the same idea here is if you, if you keep things the same, right, you're not modulating the number of intro weeks. You're not modulating the, the degree to which you're, you're decreasing training stress in those introductory weeks. And you keep all those things constant, then, yes, I think you can say, Hey, pretty reliably, I hit my peak strength in week five. So, um, it, it, it not it might seem like I'm uh, contradicting myself, but if you set things up, you can have like an ideal block length. But I think there's no there's no timer in your muscle saying, "Yep, week five, gonna hit that peak strength on squat." Hundred percent agree. And there's a massive caveat to all of this, and that is what is going on outside of training. Yes. 100%. Like in a perfect world, if this person was a robot, we probably would be able to find a very hard like time to peak, but mm-hmm. we're not. There's there's a lot of other things going on. And I think that probably is where like some systems formulate with coaches. Like for myself, I take a limited number of people and I vet it pretty well. Like I want someone who's very serious. So typically I can find a bit more predictability in most of my athletes' training because most of them are very serious about their training and very serious about what they're doing outside of their training to maximize their training. Versus if you're a coach and you're just starting out and you're coaching a bunch of college kids who are partying all the time, there's, mm-hmm. they're not sleeping, all this stuff, you're probably not going to have any type of model to stick to in sense of block like It's going to be all over the place. There's no good, there's no good, there's not going to be any time to peak. You're just going to see a bunch of peaks and valleys week to week based off of what they do on the weekend. I have a, I have a note for me tomorrow to move up one of my clients' deload week, load weeks to next week because he spent Friday through Sunday um, partying for 12 hours straight every single day. So yeah. <laughs> that's a really good example of, yeah, his time to peak didn't really apply there. So we had to, we had to move that bad boy up a week. All right. I'll, uh, so this one is absolutely not evidence-based and it's probably anti-evidence, but I do think power matters this much in powerlifting. So I think it's pretty, pretty common to hear people talk about like, uh, it should be called force lifting or whatever. And obviously it's ironic that I'm saying that because it's literally what we talk about all the time. So it's, 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 it's funny, but I think definitely biased because of like kind of my fascination with like speed and jumping growing up. So like I was always like looking at the sprinters and like thinking that 
those were like kind of synonymous as big, fast, strong. Like that's what an athlete was like a running back or something like that. Um, so definitely like there's been research now, like for example, a percentage of type two X fibers, which are the fastest, um, fibers in humans don't correlate to greater maximal strength. Um, so like definitely not a, not an evidence-based opinion, but I feel like doing, um, you know, some type of power training or just having people that are just more explosive in general does seem to correlate with people that are stronger. Um, so part of me wants to believe that so we can like be athletic and not just, you know, slow, stiff powerlifters, but it's again, not, not super evidence based. That's, uh, about the hottest take I can give. So you're saying if Marcellus does box jumps, it won't help him grind out his third squat anymore on that 10 second grinder he had at the TBS meet. Well, I mean, see, this is where, like, I get conflicted because, like, there's, like, one line of reasoning I guess you can make is that in terms of rate of force development, you know, there's different phases to rate of force development, like early rate of force development or late rate of force development. But you could make an argument that, like, doing some type of, like, explosive training like that could help you grind, actually, because you're able to ramp up to peak force with heavier weights to be able to surpass the sticking point. It's kind of, it's kind of weird to think about, but if you're able to create force more rapidly, basically the reason you fail, uh, fail a lift is because you're not able to pass the sticking point with adequate amount of force. That could be for two reasons. One, you simply can't produce the force or two, you fatigue before you get to the spot you have to meet. Um, and so if you're able to produce force more quickly, you might be able to get to that sticking point and get through it with a, with a heavier weight than you would have. Um, with everything else being held equal. So, again, pretty weak evidence, but, uh, but yeah, it's a theoretical case. Well, what you said there, I'm not going to say this is like a hard, cold, like hard straight fact, but typically descent speed and the reliance on the rebound effect correlates pretty well with someone's ability to grind. If someone dies bombs to squat and relies a lot of bouncing out of the hole, it typically looks like they're doing like a six RPE or all of a sudden they fail or not. Versus you've got someone like Dave Wilson who does a really slow eccentric, almost kind of pauses at the bottom and can grind out a squat and it's actually a seven RPE for him. Um, so I've, I'm not sure that's the only factor, but I, I tend to find that being a big factor where people think that like they need to do something crazy when no, it's, it's actually like what your eccentric is doing. That's the main correlating factor to what your concentric does. Mm-hmm. That I'm going to have to think through this after this call, because now I'm thinking like maybe rate of force development will matter. Well, the, the, the degree to which it matters or, or could potentially help you grind out a squat will depend on your descent speed, right? It depends what the limiting factor is. I'm not making any claims right now. I need to sit down and think through it. But well, that, that would be interesting because who dive bombs and rise on that a very fast uh, elastic rebound? Would they actually possibly benefit from power training, where someone like Dave Wilson would benefit zero from that, since he very much always is moving in a slow manner per se? Zach, you're the you're the West uh, Side. I, I don't know. I, I guess, or is that just I, my opinion? My unscientific, just coaching opinion, um, the adaptations occurring by you doing it that, exactly that. If you are squatting with a fast descent speed and you're trying to be more powerful, the adaptation is occurring and you're being more powerful. You're, it's just happening by the squat alone. Like training on top of that's probably not going to make a difference. Yeah, in, in general, I would definitely agree with that. I, I think there, I still think there probably could be some of the case regardless of the stress speed, but I'd have to definitely think about it more. And to be very clear, the stuff I'm talking about power, there's very weak evidence for that, but it's just something I, I think would be cool to be true. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, the other hot take we talked about, maybe we can get a little hotter with this one. What on Instagram in powerlifting makes you sometimes want to deactivate your account? So, I mentioned my approach to living in a bubble. Don't check the news. Don't follow meme pages. Um, I I think I shield myself. I, I'm a sheltered. I'm a sheltered uh, Instagram user. Um, you, know, you, guys, what, you guys both follow like 300 people. You don't like very many of us. Mm. But it, sh- it shows that you you're just you're 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 putting your bubble into uh, the people that aren't going to piss you off. I follow 1800, so plenty of people piss me off, and then I block them or unfollow them. By the time I get to the end of, of the scrolling, by the time I've like caught up on my feet, I'm like, I want this. Like being on Instagram is the last thing I want to do right now. Is like continuing to look at this. Um, so I don't know. I think I probably shield myself. Zach, do you uh, do you follow much more many more people than me? I guess the only thing that just this just bothers me in, in general life. But I feel like I don't want to. Part of me doesn't feel good saying it because it feels like kind of white nighty. I don't really like it. But like one thing that bothers me is like when people are very confident about things, um, like extremely confident about anything. Like I, like I'm probably more philosophical than, than than good for me. But like it's true that you really can't be. 100% confident about anything. So, like, when people are just extremely confident about anything, it really just, like, grinds my gears. And especially, you know, that that's the more immature side of me, especially back in the day. Like, when people would be extremely confident that we were wrong, that, like, that does seem to bother me quite a bit. But I also have to look myself in the face and make sure I'm not falling into those same traps. So I can bother myself at the same time. So just extremely confident in anything, I just feel like, generally exposed blind spots because I genuinely feel like there is utility for just about anything if you give it a chance to think about it in a, in a different context. So that's, I don't know, that's just a very broad thing, I suppose. No, I, I completely agree with it. That's actually one of, I, I there's something to be said about that because what you guys have said, and a lot of people who are successful coaches, they're able to network and they're able to converse with a lot of other coaches and that's where they're good. They have a lot of, they have a lot in their arsenal, you know, but the person who's extremely confident and almost extreme to what they think are closed-minded. That's that's another because I mean, well, you guys are you guys do a great job of handling social media and like just anything negative. I recreationally hate things, so it's it's completely out of recreation at this point. Like I follow, I think I follow people at times just to see what they post, and we'd be like, "Fuck, I'm going to get into a rant about this on a goddamn podcast because it's so dumb." But I, I, but what you're saying is completely right. Is um, they're, I think open mindedness is important with anything. Whenever, whenever you're making any sort of decision, if you're programming someone, if you're a coach, and really doing anything, you gotta be, you gotta approach things with an open mind. And people who are super confident with things, they think they have an open mind, but they don't. They're closed minded as hell. And I've seen this a lot where they use. They use those terms, those uh, those triggering terms, never, or always, or this is always stupid, or this is the best way, never do this in your workout or in your programming. Those are the triggering words that, yeah, I can't, I can't stand either. It's, it's funny you say that, and Josh probably gets sick of me, but like, when we make an Instagram post or whatever, and we're proofreading each other's stuff, like, I probably have the most excessive amount of, like, may probably maybe uh, potentially 
like to the point where it's almost sickening to read on the first draft, I'm sure. But like that is something that like genuinely haunts me at night of like, I have been that person so many times where like I look back in the past where I was like so confident about something. And then you just look back and just feel like an absolute idiot. So like I try my best now and I'm sure there's still some areas that I'm, I'm blind to, but like just always giving, like the way I view it is like always giving yourself that out of like potentially being wrong. Like, I say maybe, then, uh, you know, new stuff comes out that changes my mind. I, I still have that. I mean, I wasn't being super dogmatic, but, you know, mm-hmm. probably can still be better. I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out one. And I think you guys are going to agree. So I'm going to put it in your mouth by saying it. One of the things that drives me the most insane on Instagram is people whose main way to put informative content out is to bash someone else's views. Mm. Oh, I thought you were about to say arrows. Than presenting your own views and directing people, you just put down other people's views. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. I think uh, it's just another example of like, while you could not agree with everything somebody's saying, like I think Josh was a good example when he was talking about like RTS and kind of how they like set up their things to, to be successful. Like you have to understand the entire system or thought process that goes into something and a lot of the underlying presuppositions that often don't get discussed in somebody's head before they give you kind of all the context. Like what certain words mean, you may think they mean something, but the person has learned them in a different way and they mean something else. There's just a lot of mistranslation, I feel like, that goes on in that stuff. And just like, I don't know, I just feel like that's just a terrible policy in general to like just poo-poo on somebody's ideas to to try to boost yourself up. It doesn't really seem to work in anything in life. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think agreement on that one, as far as as far as that. But that's usually just I think out of a lack of knowledge on their own part, right? Just like going after someone else's ideas because they really can't substantiate any evidence that supports whatever claim they're trying to make. But all right, well, I mean, as far as hot takes go, I think we, I think we actually got into some. You guys thought you guys didn't have any. I thought we got into some there. And you don't have to worry, all of this will be blamed on Angela. Yes. That's part of the really cool parts about being on Two White Lights. If you say anything bad or piss anyone off, they tag Angelo and get pissed at him. Yeah. And We're going to come on more often. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. If it's, you guys seriously want to cool. air a controversy, no one is going to. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah. If you guys want to air any controversial thing, it's always going to be placed on me for the most part. Steve, be careful because you're starting to get a little bit more clout. I'm, I'm getting there a little Yeah, bit. you're getting a little I'm, more clout, so people are starting to associate you with actual things that you say. Finally. I got a little too, I got a little too confident that I can say whatever I want. I'm, all, <laughs> I'm super professional on my own page. On my PR's page, I try and keep it pretty professional and everything clean, but on here's my way to, my, my way to my frustrations and where's yeah. the opposite for me i'm professional on two white lights but outrageously unprofessional on person <laughs> you guys are tempting me to like actually start caring about what's going on in like the instagram ether because no, typically you are you are in a great space yeah, right you're, now. Yeah. <laughs> it is amazing and i'm like, so jealous of you e- even if it's like directed at I, I don't know if it's directed at us or just something we would generally advocate for and somebody sends it to me Typically, what'll happen is a hmm, that's interesting. I want I wonder what's like going on. Like I I wonder what I can learn here. Oh, and then I'm probably not thinking about it thirty seconds later. Oh, well, you know, I can actually give you an insight on what's actually happening because, like, as far as someone who's like associates with a lot of powerlifters and is a part of the community, what happens is this: people take things that either goes against the grain a little bit, or some one other popular coach said, or whatever they've heard in the past. They pass it through a group chat. Any group chat is pass it through 
and they just throw it out and see what other people say before they start trashing that because it's an echo chamber. All the shit is is it's just a big, big echo chamber of what people want to get passed through and what they think. But all it takes is like one smart guy to be like, oh, that's actually, that sounds about right. That seems relatively accurate uh, based on a lot of thought and evidence. And then that person's like, oh, okay, cool. Like because it's it's not it's cool to it's it they want to be the cool person to hate something they want to hate something first like that's all it is you're not missing out on most of it if you need any information I'll tell you exactly what's being thought of because that's that's who I, I, I commonly associate with is other negative people so there you go it's, there's a new segment or two highlights weekly report of, of yeah yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, like, a, just an honest take on it, because, I mean, I always said that for a while. It was the cool thing to, like, whatever the USAPL did, the cool thing to do was to make fun of it. That was the cool thing to do, because mm-hmm. that yep. was what the population was doing. Then it took, like, one person from the population being like, oh, that's a good good job, USAPL. And then everyone be like, okay, I agree now, because I'm a sheep. And I follow what I'm, I'm going to semi-blame us for both ends. <laughs> yes. No, no, yeah, this is... Yeah, we and also, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of this critical a lot. And formed people being critical. And then, I think, more so lately, we've been very uh, uh, on board with the USAPL. And maybe we've shifted some insight there. So oh, but, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say but, we're to blame and to thank. I'm, yeah, I'm going to market this as us being so, so on the line there. And also so true to our beliefs. That we can do that. We can hop maybe, sides. Maybe because that's, that's how true money. we are. That's how real we are. Maybe to make start making some revenue off the show, eh, 500 bucks, reach out to us. We'll either paint someone in a negative light for you or paint you in a positive light <laughs> to be able to get things moving in the right direction. That, that's what two white lights can do for you. Yeah, it's usually when I just said we're trying to be as genuine as possible, bribe people into or try to make this a... Um, an economic well, isn't game that for what us. big pages do? You get you you pay to get reposted on it. I'm well. I'm still looking for because apparently we're the like the shadow podcast of the USAPL. Usually, there's like some sort of funding that goes into that, right? Like I haven't got a fucking dime yet for doing that, and uh, but we're being labeled as the shadow page of positive publicity for USAPL. Like we haven't got a dime. Like. If you're going to bribe me, give me money. You haven't given me nothing yet. We need to wet the beak a little bit. Coaches, too. If you're a coach who wants your thing just being out there, bribe us and we'll do it. If forced into controversial statements, hot takes. (laughs) Bribery now? Actual crimes? If you guys guys tell anyone about this, because this is this... We're, we're going to say that you were the first bribe. Yeah. Yeah, now it's going to be hard Hopefully to find out. Hopefully this is at the end of the episode and nobody's <laughs> listening. And we, and we can oh. discuss our, our settlement. <laughs> yeah, our, There's more people than you think that get the that's if the, la- the cancel perm was at the very end. Yeah. You saw how many people did it. Ha- hashtag uh, normalized bribes at, at this part too. <laughs> <laughs> So so what so people that made it to this point in the podcast they have to do yeah, they have to use which hashtags so we have two they, well actually you know what I well, thought let's just something? stick to one we, we don't oh well, yeah but I mean got, if you if you wanted to Mike Zordos is the one that needs to happen yes yeah and that stick happened earlier Mike Zordos 
Oh, yeah. Well, these Easter eggs are going to be thrown in. Now Now it's going to be a reoccurring thing in 2 Light. So these Easter eggs are going to be thrown in at random parts. They could be in the first five minutes. Well, they, they should be in the at, last one. They should be going to start doing like a giveaway or something with Leflar Bros yeah. to like incentivize the, this. They're also just going to get a little bland. So eventually we'll, we'll, we'll keep listening and we'll eventually see if we can get on board with some sponsors giving away some prizes for these uh, these hashtags. Yeah, I would I would be down for that. Uh yeah, that's 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 the sign the royalty paperwork. But the only thing I'm worried about, though, with the thing, I don't know if anyone, everyone knows how to spell Zordos. So it's going to be a lot of. We'll, we'll see what it comes out to. That'll <laughs> it's be, be a lot of spelling errors, or they, Zordos. or they're going to be very nervous typing it out and being like, "Wait, I don't want to sound like an idiot if I do this because I might spell his name completely wrong." But we'll see. We'll see the uh, people can use the Google machine. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that's that. Uh, that'll be the. I'm just hoping like they they go through all those steps and just realize what they're doing is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so they they and they realize it's ridiculous through them googling it. Like I'm googling this guy's name just so I could hashtag it on my Instagram story, just out of out of jokes. But I don't know. People have gone far for jokes. Um, but <laughs> guys. It was terrific having you on Two White Lights. Hopefully, we can have you on again sometime. This is awesome. Um, also, being from the Ohio State University, me and Steve would like to thank you for Justin Fields. Uh, yes, thank we are. We're also hot take from us. We're already sold that he's going to be the best Bears quarterback of all time. So he already is the best Bears yeah. quarterback of all time. And all he's done is played two preseason games. I'm already yeah. anointing it. How are you going to do Rex like that? I, do I will do. I will. That is very easy to do. Hey, Rex like that. No, you relax. I love Rex Grossman. He signed two balls for me and my brother, and he's the coolest. But best mo- best modern day quarterback of the Bears up until now, Kyle Orton from Purdue. Purdue. Nah, bias what? there. Yeah, that's bias. A, considering he's the backup to Rex Grossman where they got to the Super Bowl. I think you're wrong on that one. Eh. I'm just going to be biased. I mean, Purdue does have the best quarterback ever to come out of the Big Ten. Am I wrong on uh, uh, Tom Brady? Definitely wrong on that. What the fuck I don't are you talking Michigan. about? I'm going to Tom Brady. Drew Brees, the GOAT. Yeah, so, that would have been a hot take a, if you would have said that. That was a take. <laughs> Purdue had the best quarterback out of the take. Big Ten without, with not acknowledging Tom Brady. That would have been a Skip Bayless quote. I'm a Chicago native as well, and my, uh, my experience with Rex Grossman – was uh, going to Soldier Field one time, watch watch the Bears play the Giants. Absolutely clobbered by the Giants. Absolutely clobbered. Pretty sure Rex Grossman threw, threw multiple interceptions in that game. So I'm a Chicago native and an Ohio State alum, so got uh, Justin Fields going from one oh, to the yeah. other. Oh, yeah. Um, you must be pumped for that. That's like the Josh greatest thing dumped, ever. Josh just dumped the full clip of his football knowledge in that sentence right there. Yeah, I was going to say, you know how I'm sheltered with meme pages, Instagram in general. Same idea with sports. I have my old my old uh, college roommate. He just text, He sends me all the relevant tweets for Ohio State football and Ohio State basketball. That's how I keep up. If it's important enough, I'll get it some way or another. All right. Well, that works at least. But, yeah, that's that's actually the, like the most convenient thing ever. Go to Ohio State and have Justin Fields as your quarterback who's going to – Save the Bears, because me and Steve, we are setting ourselves up for bitter disappointment by our... I by <laughs> place every ounce of dignity I have on Justin Fields. I'm, I'm tying myself to that train, and I'm rolling with it. All right. It's my only hope. 
Yeah. All right. Well, you guys have to experience the true white, two white lights by the end here. We, we had a little fun of like going, we usually, we don't do the full coaching nerding out. Um, but that was awesome to talk about it. Um, so you got a little bit more of the experience of rambling at the end. So I'll throw out one thing real quick. And then Angel, you're already kind of in the midst of closing. Then we rambled. We're good. Um, to promote you guys real quick, what's the uh, the team, not team coaching, but you have the, the what's that option you have? Because I know you guys are obviously pretty full and you got a lot of inquiries, but you also have that other option for people who are looking for more uh, affordable type coaching. Yeah, so we, that, that's exactly right, Steve. We kind of had, a, we realized there was a market of people that just weren't really being served with full one-on-one coaching, whether that's lack of availability with coaches they want to work with or just it not being realistic from a financial perspective. So what we try to do is create a system to help you like dial in your training variables in a systematic way, just to kind of find that, that right dose for you, that right configuration of the training variables for you. Um, and you can also kind of use it as a sandbox. So it's just like a lower cost programming option. Um, and, and we kind of have like this self coaching toolkit aspect to it. So if you're into that as well, you can, you can play around with some of the, the other, uh, Factors with the product as well. What's well, too excited, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah, that's that. That sounds uh, great. But um, yeah, again, thank you for coming on Two White Lights. Uh, again, look, have you got have you on again sometime? And really quick, uh, Zach, just be sure to tell Lane Orrin to come on the show. I'm waiting for uh, I'm waiting for an interview. That that is Angelo's dream guest. Yeah. Awesome, man. I mean, I'll, I'll say something too. Yeah, add it into his notes or something. Like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like, also, yeah. just come on two white lights. Two white lights. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, it's like you, uh, excellent looking squat looks fantastic. Also, I think you should go on two white lights. Just, just, just throw that in there. <laughs> Got it. Okay. All right. Thanks for having us on, guys. No problem. All right. We'll yeah, see. Yeah, seriously, guys. Had a great time. Thank you. All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Peace.